All right, welcome to episode three of the Fighter Pilot Professor. I'm your host, Meta. And uh, today we're going to be talking about the rules-based world order. What does that mean? How did it start? And why does it matter? We'll also be talking about how do I perform under pressure? How do I succeed when the stakes are very high? So hope you enjoy. And as always, keep shooting me your questions. So the last episode that talked about the tensions, the rising tensions between the United States and China brought up several questions from folks about what is the rules-based world order? People talk about that. What do they mean? Because this topic often comes up as it relates to the U.S. and China rivalry. And that is that the Chinese are pushing back against the U.S.-led rules-based order. What does that mean? So, I mean, in general, it's how the nations of the world currently interact with each other through the construct of the UN and the World Bank and other things like that. And the Chinese see this as a U.S.-led system and other nations too, Russia included, and they're not entirely wrong. So where, where did this come from and, and why do we have it? And going all the way back to World War One, the end of World War One. Woodrow Wilson famously came to the peace conference at Versailles with his 14 points. And these 14 points largely kind of made the construct of the Treaty of Versailles. However, there were several parts of it that were rejected uh, by the various signatories of the Treaty of Versailles. And... Um, one of the things that was rejected by the United States, in fact, was this League of Nations. And famously, the League of Nations uh, failed to prevent or you know, didn't help stop World War II. And so this failure of the League of Nations and the Treaty of Versailles is kind of what roots the current construct of the UN. And where this current construct of the UN comes from is actually in August of 1941, the President Franklin Roosevelt and British Prime Minister Winston Churchill met in the what was called the Atlantic Conference. And in effect, they dictated or laid out what the post-World War world was going to look like. In other words, after the defeat of Germany, after the defeat of Japan, what was the world going to look like? And if you were paying attention, you heard that I said August of 1941. This is prior to the United States ever entering the war. In fact, nothing yet has happened with the United States. So why would Roosevelt and Churchill want to do this. Well, both of them are products of what happens after World War I. Roosevelt is a Wilsonian Democrat at heart, and, and Churchill is a member of the British government during World War I. And both of them see this failure of the League of Nations and the Treaty of Versailles as directly contributory to what happens in leading up to World War II. And they're 100% correct in that. 
So they lay out a couple of things like, hey, neither the United States nor Great Britain nor anybody that signs on to this agreement are out for territorial gain, which was not the case at the end of World War I. Second, we're basically going to redraw the lines back to the way that they were prior to the Japanese and German aggressions in their neighborhoods. You know, and then sort of third, this general arching idea that nations, independent nations and peoples of these nations have the right to determine their own government. And this is a big deal, especially when it's signed by Churchill, who oversees the remnant of the British Empire. I mean, keep in mind that at this point in history, the British still possess India as a colony, parts of Africa, uh, colonies in Asia, etc. So this is a big deal for Churchill to sign on to the idea that nations are going to be able to independently choose their government and not be ruled by these colonial imperial powers. And then finally, the final sort of uh, key tenet is the ability to exercise free commerce and use the sea lanes to, to have commerce transition between nations, right? And so that really what is what establishes the foundations of the rules-based world order. This Atlantic Charter then goes on to be the foundations of the United Nations. And, and ironically, again, several nations sign on to what becomes the charter for the UN and sign on to this Atlantic Charter well before World War II even ends. So um, something like 20 nations initially sign up to this idea of the Atlantic Charter. And then in, in 1945, after the end of World War II, then the United Nations is established and gives permanent, essentially permanent control of the United Nations to the victorious nations of World War II. And those victorious nations are the United States, the United Kingdom, France, Soviet Union, and China. However, as we discussed in the last episode, initially that seat of China goes to the Chinese Nationalist Party, not to the Chinese Communist Party. So the Chinese Communists, who now sit in the Chinese seat in the UN, see it as their sort of birthright, if you will, uh, to have some say in the way the rules-based world order works. However, the Chinese Communists were not initially part of this group of nations that signed on to the UN Charter, the Atlantic Charter, right? So some of the ideas that are baked in, if you will, to the UN Charter from the Atlantic Charter, the Chinese communists disagree with, right? Some of those include things like self-determination, and they specifically dislike that about Taiwan because they see Taiwan as part of China. Ironically, the previous regime, the Chinese nationalists saw Taiwan as part of China too. So that's why there's this tension between Taiwan and China and the U.S. is this around this self-determination of what's going to happen to China and who rightfully has, where does Taiwan rightfully belong? Is it part of China? Is it separate? Et cetera, right? The other part of this is that free negotiation of, and of economy and navigation of the sea lanes, right? And as we talked about in the last episode, the Chinese communists own or 
or attempting to control parts of the South China Sea. And so that control of the South China Sea in their mind gives them control over what happens in that part of the world and therefore gives them control over people's ability to ship goods, conduct commerce, etc., through those sea lanes. And so that's the basis of a lot of the conflict between China and the rules-based world order. So there you go. So that's the, the quick summary of how we got to the rules-based world order. Of course, it includes other things like the World Bank and the International Criminal Court and all various myriad other things that go along with this. But that's the the core of how we got to the rules-based world order. Hope you enjoyed. All right, so here we go. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, how do I perform under pressure. And this discussion, and I have this discussion a lot with with folks about how do I deal with the stress of of doing whatever it is I do, learning to fly, participating in sports, whatever it is, the things that I do. And, and obviously they come to me because they know that I'm a fighter pilot and the fighter pilot world is filled with high stakes, high pressure situations uh, that in fact, uh, you know, if you don't perform um, could mean your life. So um, obviously most folks' uh, worlds are not, you know, life or death as it relates to performing under pressure. But nevertheless, um, people feel the the strain of performing uh, in in their daily life. So, how do you how do you do that? And it really it starts with preparation. In the fighter pilot world, we do a lot of training. And I've I've said this before. I often equate flying fighter aircraft to being an elite athlete. Again, not an elite athlete. Not I am not an elite athlete. I'm just using it as a metaphor because people tend to understand this. We train a lot similar to the way elite athletes do, and we practice skills and build those skills into ever-increasing complex environments, right? So, you know, a basketball team, like a basketball player might, for example, practice dribbling drills and passing drills, dribbling drills alone and shooting drills alone, and then passing drills with a teammate, and then you know, three on three, four on four, five on five, et cetera. And they practice these skills in like individual skills and then team skills, et cetera. And they build those things to ever more and more complex things, building towards game situations, right? We do similar things in the fighter pilot world. We start with basic skills like 1v1 dogfighting, for example, and then we add another aircraft and then we add two or three or five or 10, right? We build up the number of aircraft in these in these aerial engagement scenarios. And then you add surface to air threats, et cetera, et cetera. And so we build these skills one view from the most basic to the most complex. So that's the first way is how do I do this? Well, I prep, I got to practice through all of these scenarios and I have to build both my individual skills and my team skills. Right. And so, you know, if that's school related, then I got to do homework. Right. And I got to I got to understand what my homework is and I got to practice that. I got to build that up. And then I have to like add more complexity to that. I can't just be happy with doing the basic math problems that my math teacher has given me, for example, right? I have to build complexity to that, right? Similarly, if I'm practicing for something, some presentation, for example, at work or whatever, then I have to build that from, hey, what's my basic idea and how do I deliver my skills, my voice skills, my intonation, my 
whatever. I have to practice those skills, but I also then have to practice what it is that I'm going to say. And then I have to add elements like sound and lights, et cetera, and make it all fancy at the end. Right. So that's how I build. I got to build that step by step from the most basic skills to the most complex skills. And that's how I prepare. That's the first step preparing. The second step is sort of the, the Zen empty your mind. Right. And what do I mean by that? Well, it's really just relying on your preparation. If you are a watcher of documentaries and you've seen The Last Dance about Michael Jordan, one of the most interesting things I saw in that was Michael Jordan talking about why would I be worried about a shot that I've never taken? And basically what he's saying is like, hey, I've practiced this thing a million times and I have yet to even step on the court to take this very high pressure shot. So why am I worried about it right now? And that's a very like, you know, open, empty mind way of thinking about it. But the best way to think about it is really is I'm going to rely on my preparation and the nerves that I feel in gearing up for the thing that I'm going to do is totally normal, right? It's my body getting ready to do that thing. So I need to just rely back on my preparation, my training in order to do that. And I can't worry about that feeling in my gut that's, that sounds and feels like nervousness. That's just your body getting ready to do the thing that you're going to do. Right. And frankly, you want a little bit of that, right? Cause it gets your blood flowing. It gets that adrenaline up all those, all those different chemicals that are flying around in your brain are good because it's activating parts of your brain and getting them ready to go do whatever it is you're going to do. Right. So understand that that nervousness that you feel is just kind of part of it. And then the last thing is for both practice and real life execution of something is get feedback, right? So especially during the preparation phase, getting feedback on how I did and, and in the fighter pilot world, we watched back in my day, we watched tape, but you know, nowadays it's digital recording and similarly athletes do the thing, do the same thing where they watch video of themselves performing, right? So this feedback loop of preparation and then execution and then review sort of reinforces the things that you've learned and helps you isolate the things that you've done both well and the things that you've done poorly. And so when you get back into the preparation loop and you start all over, now you know what you need to focus on or what you need to polish and how you need to get ready for the next one, right? So. Hopefully that makes sense. And really it comes down to that preparation. Preparation is the biggest thing for getting yourself ready to do something. You can't just jump right in. You have to get ready. Hopefully that helps and keep shooting me your questions. All right. That wraps up episode three. Uh, send me your feedback so I can get better at this thing. And uh, just like we talked about today, you know, I need feedback so I can get better and improve the way, what I'm doing here. And then uh, also let me know what you want to talk about, what things you want to learn about and uh, and get better at. Have a good one. <laughs>